You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio, hosted by Dr. Roxana Moran. I'm Caitlin Cox, the producer of this podcast and news editor for TCTMD. In today's episode, we're looking back at the best of 2023. It's an annual tradition we started last year, and it's a lot of fun for me to pull together. Both times, I've been surprised and happy to see how much ground we've covered over just 12 months. My favorite parts are those that tried to predict the future. What might the year hold for cardiology? Nearly all those predictions were spot on. Other hot topics were women's heart health and the advent of medications for cardiometabolic health. Then we had an episode that touched on what it takes to be both a cardiologist and a well-rounded, well-rested human being. Summer vacations. To start off 2023, in January, our guests were Athena Pappas and Gabriel Stegg. Dr. Moran wanted to hear their take on what they were most excited to see in the year ahead. They had a lot to say. Athena, what are you looking forward to in 2023? I think that digital health is an important thing for us to sort of dissect because we learned that we can do telehealth, which is get on the phone and talk to people during the pandemic, which was fantastic. It was a, a, a great move that we had to do. Um, and really, I think for a lot of patients was potentially life-saving, right? So they were able to reach out, we were able to connect with them. But digital health is much, much, much more than that. It's about utilizing a lot of the wearable data. It's about utilizing some of the pragmatic data we have for trials. It's about taking that information in real time and finding a way besides phone calls to activate that and respond to that in real time, and then using that as pragmatic trials to study it. So I'm looking forward to this next piece. I think there's going to be a bit of a gap where we utilize perhaps more AI to to assess some of this information so that we don't have to, but um, to have, you know, digital stethoscope with a patient that needs be, and that gets us a little more access, whether it's rural or urban uh, population so that we can access them. So I'm looking for the next wave, the 2.0, where we move from telehealth to truly digital health. Nice. Gabrielle, what, what are you excited about? Oh, I'm excited about many things. Um, first of all, obviously, AI and digital health are very big. There's not a single field in cardiovascular research that is not affected by this. But I would say that I haven't seen yet the practical implementation of much of this research. It, it's largely remaining a promise as we talk. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's not going to materialize. I think it will materialize very, very heavily. Uh, but I, I want to see more pragmatic results uh, on this. And we're all working in, on various studies in trying to implement the best of AI for imaging, for diagnosis, for prognosis, for uh, um, identification of proper targets and so on. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, an interesting area to think that we are able already now looking at a um, rest EKG to predict the probability of a fib is mind boggling, if only for that. But there's much more information coming and much more, many more results coming up. I'm also quite excited about the prospects for gene editing. I think we've seen the cardiovascular application of gene editing with ATTR amyloidosis. Um, and I, I find this mind-boggling that this, which was a Nobel Prize discovery a few years ago, is already implemented in the clinic and already treating patients uh, is amazing. Of course, uh, we need to have more trials, more results to monitor the efficacy, safety, and cost of these therapies, but it's mind-boggling. And we're seeing outside of cardiology how this is 
potentially also affecting many other areas, um, sickle cell disease and, and others are, are really cases in point where we have prospects for treatment that is so effective and so definitive. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about this and including in cardiology and cardiovascular prevention, there will be avenues for this, for treating homozygous uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, and maybe in the future, as we we were seeing with the attempts of VERV, uh, maybe even um, common hypercholesterolemia one day, who knows? So I think the prospects are very exciting there. I'm also excited about the uh, new metabolic agents that are coming up. We've seen um, a couple of years of great success of heart failure drugs, We've had treatments that are effective now for HEFPEF. We have the um, uh, quadruple therapy for HEFREF. Um, but now we're seeing agents that come up that are extremely effective at tackling the risk of obesity and reversing obesity. Uh, so effective that they may put in question the use of bariatric surgery, which is quite established, and that they may affect on a population basis, the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes uh, in in our countries. So I think that's really uh, very exciting if it's truly effective, safe, and sustained, which remains to be demonstrated. Um, but I think there are prospects that are quite exciting. Lipids are moving all around. I mean, we've we've worked on LDL for 25 years, but now LPLA, um, triglycerides, um, uh, we're seeing a, a flurry of uh, new targets for uh, dyslipidemia treatment with new effective agents that are coming up and are being tested in large phase three trials. So it's, it's also a very exciting time there. So there's a lot of action ongoing in the trials and uh, in science. Then in February, Dr. Moran honored Women's Heart Month with Erin Mikos, Sharon Hayes, and Marianne McLaughlin she discussed how much progress has been made and how much work there is left to do. One way to spread the word about female patients' unique cardiovascular needs, she said, would be a fellowship that brings together the strengths of academic medical centers across the country. Ideally, it would bring male trainees, not just female, into the fold. Dr. Hayes had input as well. I believe we are just like heart failure, just like angioplasty, interventional cardiology. I don't mean to say that we should be training more people but I almost believe there's enough here for a one-year fellowship for women or men, and it doesn't necessarily have to be women to care for women with heart disease. We need more men to care about heart disease in women. For some reason, it's been sort of pushed to the women because we feel like, oh, we, you know, that sex concordance situation. But I believe a fellowship um, in that could be is is really in order. And, and I've already written a curriculum. I'll be reaching out to you guys, because if you think this is a has some meat in it, which I think it does. And uh, we could we could go for an um, to start a fellowship together a, across the centers and then imagine that my fellow could then go and work at the Mayo Clinic or come to Hopkins uh, for a couple of months and vice versa, where we could really see what's going on in different different places and, and see different kinds of patients, et cetera. It would be fascinating. I don't know what you all think about that. Uh, I, I'll just speak to the, the same gender, um, same sex provider. Um, a lot of patients want that, um, but I will tell them that's not what you really want. When they, uh, you know, I want a, a, a female provider. I said, no, you want somebody who listens to you and who knows what they're doing. And there has not been one shred of evidence that says that care 
by women on average is better for women than care, except in some administrative databases. There's some evidence that I would hope that I yeah. and those of us on this call are better than the average male cardiologist because I specialize in this, but that's because I have received training. When we first started our Women's Heart Clinic, we specifically said this is not going to be limited to women cardiologists and providers, but that's all who asked to do it. I put out a call to the whole division. I said, we're gonna work together. And um, I had one man who said he, he, he would be glad to do it, um, and, but he assumed no woman would want to see him, right? I mean, that, so there is this attitudinal thing. I have been quite heartened though, when we've had internal medicine residents and now cardi cardiology fellows who are doing elective rotations in the women's heart clinic. I ask every man why, I, because the women, I kind of, I should ask them, I suppose, but I ask every man and the one, the, 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 the answers I love the best are they're going to be half my patients. I want more expertise Good. in this. Well, isn't that great? That's how mm -hmm. it right? should be. Right, and, and so we need to imbue them and we need to help our patients and not promulgate the fact that yes, maybe you need to be at a women's heart center, but that does not mean that every woman that you see is going to be an expert in that because that's, right. that's, like that's like a bias in and of itself. In March, Dr. Moran connected with Kathy Biga, president-elect of the American College of Cardiology to discuss current challenges in care delivery. Vega said that ACC, through its company MedAxiom, has made strides in teaching cardiologists the skills they need, from RVUs to after-hours work, billing and scheduling. Clinicians are being forced to develop non-clinical competencies. And this is natural. Everyone needs a paycheck, she said. Still, it's possible to achieve balance. The many demands can lead both to burnout and to patients getting short shrift. So what's the solution? How do we balance this, Kathy? What do you, what do you think is the solution? Well, number one, and I think ACC 23 was a prime example of that, we have got to get non-clinical competencies into fellowship training. We really have to align it with the clinical acumen that you deliver as program directors and mentors for our fellows, because the bottom line is that this payment system is not going to change easily. And so we do have to be able to do it in a manner that our physicians and our APPs uh, find joy back in their work, that we're not working for our EMR, but our EMR is supposed to be working for us. And, and that's part of what our role as administrators are in this team-based approach. And that's kind of the key, Roxanne, because I assume we're going to talk about the enormous economic pressures that the hospitals are under, the incredible staffing that we're all under, the great resignation. And so the bottom line is that we have to figure out how to deliver care differently. The CV care delivery model has got to change. And it's so hard. We did it during COVID. We did it very quickly during COVID, but yet we've all trenched back into our normal way of doing it. As you know, one of our favorite slides is looking at our waiting room from 1980 or looking at our exam room from 1990. They look exactly the same today. So what are we really doing to take advantage of some of the either artificial intelligence or different technology to really help our patients have access and to help our physicians not do all of their task box at home at nine o'clock at night. That's, that's the goal of the next couple of years. Do you think we're going to make that though? You think we're going to actually be successful and what will it take? Well, it will take coming out of our comfort zone. How good are we coming out of our comfort zone? Probably not all that great. And again, unfortunately, it kind of boils down to money. 
And it boils down to how we reimburse our physicians. Because the bottom line is no matter what area of cardiovascular services you're employed by, you're employed. And that employment is based on a model from 1985 when Medicare came into play on how our fee schedules are all aligned or misaligned. And as long as our payment model is misaligned with our delivery model, it will continue to be a challenge. So we need to figure out whether we do different carve-outs with our private payers, look at different methods of bundles like we have with both the ACOs and the bundle payment initiative. Those are starts, but we're by no means um, sustainable and successful. Yeah, I mean, I think it just, it seems to me like um, as much as we have to know these clinical competencies that we're getting, you know, board certified for, I almost feel like this non-clinical competency, if you're going to run um, a program, if you're going to be a chief, if you're going to be anything that is like, especially in terms of promoting and promotions, you're going to have to know a little bit about these non-clinical, not a little bit, but a lot. Speaking of balance, our July episode featured tips on how cardiologists can make time for summer vacation and acknowledge the reasons why that's often hard to do. Dr. Moran spoke with Nadia Sutton and Trihari Naidu, both of whom said they managed to squeeze in summertime breaks with their families. Though for two-week stops, and sometimes even then, the work creeps in. Yeah, isn't it crazy how guilty we are to take two weeks off? Why is that? Why are we so guilty? Why are we guilt-ridden? to do self-care, to have time, downtime, and then to spend time with our families. Why is that such a guilt feeling for us cardiologists? I just, I, I just can't, I mean, Nadia just told us that she admits that five or six days of her downtime was, you know, conferencing. That's gotta be really frustrating. I know my kids hated it and I, I'm a victim to this as well. And they, they, they it, it really is not so good. I mean, part of it is self-inflicted that we want to be, you know, taking care of our patients. I'm not sure it's all guilt. And part of it is what you just mentioned, Rox, that when you come back, you're slammed. So if you don't take care of some of it during it, you end up paying for it later. But I think, but there is a part of it that's guilt, which is that uh, for some reason, everybody just shows how hard they're working and nobody tends to highlight their personal life. And so you get into this cycle where people try to hide their personal life. I, I don't think that's, a, that's appropriate, but I think that's where the guilt comes from. Nadia, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I also think that some of it is habit. I mean, I think it starts from the time that we're undergrads and doing our residencies and fellowships where usually, you know, you might have a two-week block off, but, um, you know, there's a sense of uh, always being a hardworking person and it just sort of being in the habit of it. And then I think also, you know, it depending on the model that you're in, I know, maybe we were going to talk about this, but, you know, perhaps you're giving up income by, you know, taking the vacation time or you feel, yeah, a sense of you're burdening your colleagues. Um, if you're gone, um, you know, there's, there's all those different aspects, I think that lead to some sense of feeling guilt, um, around it. But I think, you know, we can learn a lot sometimes from our, our colleagues in other countries and, see how they do it. And, um, and I think some of it, you know, maybe our, our culture, our U.S. culture that leads us to feel that way as well. For October, Dr. Moran kicked off a two-part series on cardiometabolic health. She spoke with guest Pam Taub. A month ahead of the American Heart Association meeting in Philadelphia, cardiologists were advised about the select trial. Top-line results had given the world a preview. 
In non-diabetic patients with overweight or obesity, the GLP-1 receptor agonist semaglutide reduced the risk of MACE by 20% on top of what could be achieved with standard care. What the full select results showed wasn't yet public knowledge, but even then, GLP-1 agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors, once indicated only for diabetes treatment, were seeing a surge in popularity as a weight loss tool. Dr. Taub's research interests have long touched on cardiometabolic disease and cellular metabolism. This background made her confident that these drugs had something to offer patients, even those without diabetes. Very early on, I started using SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists in my clinical practice. I felt very comfortable using these medications. And I remember my colleagues would make fun of me and say, why are you using these medications for diabetes? This is not something we in cardiology want to do. And I kept saying back then, these medications are incredible. They have pleiotropic effects. They can do multiple things. And gradually the data started to emerge. So the same colleagues that were once teasing me about using some of these agents now come to me and say, okay, how do I manage this side effect or how do I do that? So it's really come full circle, but I really think that SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists are some of the most powerful drugs for cardiovascular disease prevention. And it's also about using them early and appropriately. And one of the things that's happening is now they're in vogue and there is a lot of inappropriate use of, of these medications. Dr. Moran agreed it's important to proceed cautiously amid the excitement. A lot of us, including myself, fit into the category that should be on semaglutide. And I'm wondering, how are we going to get enough supply of this stuff? And, and are we overusing it? And when should we use it? Mm -hmm. So I think that you have to use it appropriately because one of the things that we're learning with this class of agents is some people are looking for the easy way out and not also having concomitant lifestyle strategies. And what we do know is if you stop these medications, the weight comes back. So you're really looking at, oh, for a lot of people, lifelong use of these very expensive medications. And then the other issue is at what doses. So in my clinical practice, what I've always done is use the smallest possible dose and used it really to jumpstart the lifestyle. And when you do that synergistically, these medications work very well. What I'm also seeing is people are using very high dosages of these medications very quickly, not titrating up. And I'm seeing a lot of adverse side effects. For instance, uh, I saw uh, when I was on call, there was a patient who had lost about uh, 50 pounds with a tercepatide, which is a GLP-1, GIP-1, GLP-1, GIP agonist, um, was a heart failure patient, got hypotensive, uh, had to be admitted to the ICU, was on pressors, all because of the inappropriate use of this medication. So we have to be careful and people who really understand mechanistically how these medications are working, especially in our cardiovascular patients who are on multiple other agents that impact blood pressure, that impact hydration. So we also need to have a good knowledge base and good training of our clinicians before they start using these medications. No, um, it's your point is so well taken. And we really realize that 
um, we're seeing a little bit of overutilization. And now there's also issues with access to these medicines to those who really need it. So we have to be cognizant of it. But uh, hopefully uh, the companies are also uh, who are promoting these are making sure there's enough supply for the people who uh, the medication fits in. This is the perfect segue, in my view, to 2024. Next month, you can join us for part two of our series on cardiometabolic health. After such a blockbuster year, what's next? How will patients' lives and lifestyles change with these options available? After all, obesity isn't the only thing that drives cardiovascular risk. There's so much left to explore. So this is it for us in 2023. Thank you for tuning in to our Best Up episode. Be sure to check out not only future Rocks Heart Radios, but also Heart Sounds, hosted monthly by TCTMD Managing Editor Shelley Wood. Happy New Year!